We all know that the left is no longer liberal, but the past few weeks have shown like never before the distressing results of our trend towards polarization. The mainstream media has doubled down on their petty, hyper-partisan mudslinging in the face of a true crisis. It's more important than ever to be informed, engaged, responsible citizens who want to follow the facts and ignore the nonsense and the noise. That's what Don't Burn This Book is all about. While we faced a lot of pressure to delay the publication of this book because of quarantine, I felt it was important to get these ideas out as soon as possible. I know that free thought, free speech, and patriotism are as important to you as they are to me, so I hope this book entertains and inspires you during the days and weeks ahead. Order now at don'tburnthisbook.com. Hi, everybody. Michael Shermer here talking to Dave Rubin about his new book, Don't Burn This Book. I tried to burn it last night because uh, I ran out of firewood and it just wouldn't take. So I don't know what the deal is here. They got special paper or something. <laughs> we we anyway, sent you the uh, fire retardant copy because I you're a guess, skeptic right. and I knew you'd be up to no good. That's right. Sort of like polyester suits. They don't burn. <laughs> so, um, well, I read your whole book. Uh, I did it on audio and then read it before we talked before on, on my uh, podcast uh, from the print edition. So um, congratulations on the book. I thought we just hit some of the key points in chapter three, because to me, I think this is where the rubber re meets the road. It's one thing to say, well, I'm in favor of freedom. Everybody's in favor of freedom if you ask them. Uh, but what about this point or what about that point, you know, is is, is kind of where it matters. Now, you and I are largely on the same page. So I think I'll channel my inner um, progressive far left uh, Go for person I, I, like I, I see on, on uh, cable news and and, and just kind of try to steel man the other side. So we'll Great. hit um, the, the major issues here in Chapter three, drugs, immigration, foreign policy, economics and so on, starting with drugs. Um well, so you fess up to having done a few yourself, so <laughs> so I, I guess somebody I've done most could, of the good ones. I guess somebody could accuse you of being in favor of the uh, decriminalization of drugs because for personal reasons, but of course you're you're not arguing that here. You're arguing for um, you know in terms of personal liberty. I guess it would apply something like the harm principle. As long as you're not harming anybody, what what's the problem? Well, the problem I I would guess that you know, that conservatives might argue would be it does harm people indirectly. So let's mm -hmm. say, um, you know, it, it, you, it drives insurance costs up because you personally have to be treated medically or whatever, and the rest of us have to pay for that through our premiums. Or worse would be something like the broken windows theory of crime, where Mm -hmm. you know, little things that bring the neighborhood down a little bit, drug dealers on the corner or whatever. You know, why don't we just let them uh, deal drugs like the liquor store sells liquor, or the gas station sells cigarettes? And the, the, the counter argument to that, I think, would be, well, but it brings down the neighborhood like graffiti on walls, sig sends a signal to everybody. This neighborhood is not being monitored by the police. We don't give a crap about standards here. Do what you want. And that leads to petty crimes, and then that escalates to major crimes. And before you know it, you have a runaway homicide effect like in the 70s in New York City. So what's your response to that? So that's why I love you, Shermer, because you went out of your way to steel man some of the oppositional stuff. So my, my basic feelings about this are, first off, and I make this point, if you're for legalized alcohol, which pretty much everyone is, then you really can't make an argument 
at least against legalizing marijuana. I mean, the amount of medical problems and most of the domestic violence and all of the negative things, drunk driving that come with, with alcohol, there's actually no evidence that any of those things come with marijuana. So that, that's one. And then I would expand, but by the way, I, I'm completely okay leaving it to the states, which is how we're doing it right now. It was first medically available in certain states and now recreationally available. And I'm completely fine with that. And if you don't want it in your state, you can move to another state. And what the states have found actually is that when they've recreationally um, allowed it, not only are they not really seeing a major increase in marijuana usage, well, then they're also generating tax revenue. Colorado is probably the best example of this. Um, I'm also okay generally with legalizing some other drugs, so like psilocybin, magic mushrooms, things like that. And then where I get into the broken windows part, which I think is completely legit, is that when I talk about the light touch of government and things from a classical liberal or libertarian perspective, and I have a lot of libertarians that have been reading this already that are, that are kind of pissed at me, and my friend Michael Malice, I went on his show and we, we duked it out all, all in good spirits. He wants to legalize everything. My feeling is this is where government has to come in and do some stuff. So first off, I don't wanna put people in jail for doing drugs. I, I simply don't wanna do that. Um, and I think there's better ways either through rehabilitation, um, and hopefully most of that can even be done privately, but I would be willing to put some public funds to getting people off drugs. But I don't wanna just jail people because they've made some, let's say, rough choices or, or negative personal choices. Uh, that being said, I also admit to doing a lot of stuff back in the day, and should I have been put in jail had I been caught? And we also know that there's socioeconomic reasons that certain types of people will be caught uh, more frequently than other types of people and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But what I would say in short is that you have to have some rules. So the simple answer on this is, look, if my neighbor, if we legalized everything, and then I found out that my neighbor was making meth in his kitchen, or it turned into a crack den, or something like that, not only do we know that there would be all sorts of nefarious people coming around, that there would be more crime, it would be less safe for kids to be around, and a whole slew of things. Now, specifically making everything illegal or legal doesn't necessarily take care of all of those problems, but I, this is just one of those places where I feel you just need some guidelines on society, and where I guess the rich conversation that we could have, and we sort of did this when you had me on your podcast, we could whittle this down to, okay, well then what drugs are exactly are we talking about on all of these yeah. things? So is it marijuana and say medicinal mushrooms and ayahuasca, sort of the, the uh, psychedelic stuff that generally people do and there isn't like a hardcore addiction and is the, is the hardcore addiction, heroin, meth, things like that, is that the line? It, it's a great place to have that back and forth, but what I was trying to do here, which is what I try to do with the whole book, is just just give some basic guidelines and then let's sort of whittle down the differences. Yeah, you, you talked about the taxation of cigarettes in New York City. Uh, I'd forgotten how expensive it is to smoke because I've never smoked, but... Yeah. Um, it's crazy right. in New York City. and New York yeah. State tax on a pack of 20 cigarettes is $4.35. 20 cigarettes, there's people that do that every day. Uh, yep. While New York City tax is $1.50, comprising $5.85 of the $14 total. New York is now the black market capital in the United States for illegal cigarette sales. So that, I presume, is just to avoid the taxes. So there's a problem yeah, well, with... 
Yeah, well, it's also that, you know, if you're taxing people on vices in a weird way as the state, you end up needing people to have vices to generate revenue. And I don't like that idea that we're going to sort of, in a weird way, need the very people we're trying to stop from doing these things. So, you know, again, this is where I just want to get the government out of the way as much as possible, but I don't want to crack down next door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woody Allen, Woody Allen had a funny bit about um, to get divorced in New York State. This is back in the '60s. You had there had to be a cause. So as he said, um, uh, what was it? Uh, adultery is required in New York City. <laughs> right, long, exactly. So you have to have it. Yeah, <laughs> you have yeah. to have it. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of funny. Yeah. So that that's the problem with well. So the counterargument to legalizing pot, say, and then taxing it is that if you drive the taxes too high or the the regulatory um, bureaucracy to set up a pot farm and so on is so um, it, it, it's so large that people then just do it on the sly anyway, just to avoid all that. And I think that there has been some cases in Oregon where, where there's a lot of illegal pot growers still because they can't get the license or they don't have the money for the license and then all the taxes. Right. And all of that, I would leave up to then hopefully some other people come in and they find cheaper ways to make marijuana or to grow marijuana or everything else. That's where competition, I would hope, would de you know depress some of those costs. But again, it's not perfect. And that's what I try to say throughout the book, right. that if you're dealing with these issues honestly, as opposed to sort of this utopian idea that we can create a perfect law for everybody that's going to stop everyone from doing all the bad things and they're only going to do the good things. That's just right. not real. So what I try to do is get out of people's way as much as possible, but then also say, okay, we got to have some guardrail so that we're not completely going off the deep end. Okay, gay, gay marriage. This one's kind of hard for me to steel man the other side because yeah. uh, you know I'm, I'm so in favor of it. But we don't have to go back very far. 2011, uh, both Hillary and Obama were against it before that, and pretty much you know that that was the trend. So what were their arguments? Okay, let's see. You know, the state sanctions marriage for a reason, because the state wants citizens to have more babies. So marriage is sort of the foundation of family with children. And of course, that is an ancient tradition, with, you know, grounded in religion. But the state, you know, gives you a tax break for being married because they want people to be married so that they have kids and so on. Um, and that somehow, uh, the, the, you know, allowing gay marriage then then what people can marry their pets or you know or or or, or having uh, polygamous families because if you want lots of children then let guys marry 20 women and have tons of children you know so i guess they were making something of a, a slippery slope argument that if you allow mm -hmm. this then you put a crack in the in, in this in the foundation of of why the state endorses marriage in the first place well and then on top of that there's just sort of the more typically conservative argument, which is also bound up in religion and the Bible and, you know, a, a man and a woman and a man should not lie with another yeah. man and, and that sort of stuff, um, which I know, I know, certainly know your feelings on that. I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on this because in many ways the ship has sailed and the loudest yeah. voices against yeah. gay marriage. I mean, the Christian right, you know, when you think of the Mike Huckabees and the Rick Santorums, they actually are, have completely let it go. Now, that doesn't mean they have their, they don't have their own personal religious beliefs. But as an issue, I find that most of the people we know, like Ben Shapiro, who has his own personal religious belief, he's taking the libertarian approach, which is either that the state shouldn't be involved in all at all, or it shouldn't uh, it shouldn't be something you know. I can have my beliefs and you can have yours. So I'm I'm actually okay with that, and I'm thrilled that this really is no 
longer an issue. And I can, I can just accept, and I know a lot of, this is where a lot of lefties get angry at me, but I can just accept that some people may not be happy with all my life choices. It's okay, I'm happy with them. And, and that's enough <laughs> right. for me. So I don't even think it's really one that, I, was, I sort of wrote it very quickly because it was kind of like, the ship has sailed and you know, when you get wins, I think this is one of the things that, that people don't do well in politics. When you get a win, be gracious about it. Like I don't need to now rail against and say, oh, but all of you used to be against it and, and just keep clubbing over the head. Guys, we yeah. got a win, let's move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's move on to a much harder problem, I think, is immigration. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, we don't want to open the borders up to everybody, but and we don't want to close the borders to you know, so nobody comes in. What what's the right balance? How do you find that? That was a very dangerous word you used there, my friend. Obviously, because you know a lot of people don't find that obvious. I mean, there's there's sort of the lefty version of open borders and and sort of no nation states, and then there's a very strong libertarian argument for that too. Yeah. I am completely against both of those arguments. That is an odd one for the horseshoe theory, right? Because you've right. got the far yeah. lefties and the libertarians both saying, just open it up and we'll have one passport and you can wander through and commerce and all that. Look, I, I believe in strong nation states. I believe in an American ethos that is special, that is different than a Canadian ethos and is different than a Mexican ethos. We are separate countries. Uh, the book that I reference in the chapter, uh, The Virtue of Nationalism by Jerome Harzoni, his whole argument is that every nation should be able to set its own laws and its own customs and its own traditions and all of those things. And that's going to be different than every other country. Now, that doesn't mean that one is necessarily worse or one is necessarily better, but most likely every nation is going to do something different. And that strong nations first at the bottom are then what can build a sort of worldwide system that we can all play by. And what we've done backwards, and this is when people talk about globalism, is we think that, oh, if we could all just be governed by one thing first, then we can sort of set that down to all of the individual states. And that, I just don't buy into that idea. I don't buy into it from an American perspective when I talk about the federal government. I like things to go this way. Um, and so that really is the argument. I want strong nation states. I think every country from the United States to Paraguay has the right to set whatever their immigration policy is. That doesn't mean they're always going to do it exactly justly or exactly fairly. Um, but one other thing that I do reference in, the, in this portion is that many of the things that Trump now says about immigration, although he says them perhaps without the great cadence of Barack Obama, are the exact same things that Barack yeah. Obama and Bill Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Schumer and all of them have said in the past. So I think when you whittle it down to the truth, most people actually do believe in borders. Most people, we look, we know we have something like 12 million illegal immigrants here. I'm for a pathway to citizenship. I don't wanna kick all these people out, but we have to start figuring out a way to talk about this honestly. It can't just be open borders for everybody or, or everybody else's races. Yeah, I have a wall around my house and I have a front door. Yeah. That's a kind Boy. of a wall. <laughs> yeah, isn't uh, that something? Yeah. yeah, now, so the libertarian argument that uh, let the economy decide. So we're in Southern California. A lot of Mexicans come here to work. They do great work. Why not? They wouldn't come here if there was an economic opportunity. So why not just let the uh, let the market determine? Now, someone like, uh, uh, I think, a Heather McDonald or a more, a more con traditional conservative would say, but they're not bringing American values with them. Mm -hmm. So even if 
they're hardworking. We want them to believe in the say the Constitution or the civil rights and you know the things that that you know that Ameri- that define Americanism versus other uh, traditions. Um, that seems to me harder to to kind of articulate or quantify in an immigration it's policy. Harder, yes. It's it's absolutely harder to quantify. I'm with them on the spirit of that. I don't want to I don't want to insult any of these individual people, of course. Um, but we don't we don't know exactly if everyone's just coming here for work. That doesn't mean that they share in the American ethos. Now, I also don't want to force anyone to share in the American ethos. So I think you're right that quantifying it actually is is the hard part. And that's that's why I say you know you you can leave this. Every administration can set their policy. This is one of the things that the federal government is supposed to do. And you know what? If you if you don't like Trump's policy on it, then don't vote for Trump. And then if you get a, a Democrat in who maybe has a more liberal policy, a more open policy, and you don't like that, then vote against that guy. That actually is the beauty of our system because it do, it's not that we're setting a policy and this is the policy now for the next 20 years. Right. Yeah, so it's always adjustable on that. Um, even if you, you can't quantify it, there, there is a way to kind of articulate it and have some kind of uh, reasonable policy. Uh, you know, at the end of the moral arc, I sort of speculated about a, a future of a world without borders. In a way, we were we were getting there without economic borders because of the Internet. You know, the, at least the borders were very porous and it was easy to trade with other people. And I could imagine that continuing where, the you know, the political unit is the city state, not the nation state. Uh, unfortunately, since I wrote that in 2015, you know, we've kind of gone the other direction of, you know, <laughs> nation states gaining more power, but I like the idea of local solutions. You know, the the pothole out here on my street, you know, the the federal yeah. government, I can't count on them. I just want the local Santa Barbara people to come up, fix my pothole. They're the ones responsible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I make that that same argument literally about a, about our messed up exit off the 405 yeah, near my house. I mean, right. that that's absolutely true. By the way, one other thing on this quickly. Obviously, I wrote this before coronavirus, but one of the interesting things that's popping up right now is that suddenly you've got all of these lefties that are saying, oh, we should have closed the border to China a lot sooner, even though Trump was actually fairly ahead on that and they were calling him racist for doing it. But you know, the truth of the matter is these are the same people who just two weeks before that would have been calling for open borders and allowing you know totally free uh, back and forth all the time. So it's one of those things that I think, you know, you sort of said it before, when the rubber hits the road, um, I think people's policies start making a little more sense because they're they're important and they impact them rather than just at the idea level when you can sort of say something and it doesn't necessarily matter. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, abortion issue again, another contentious one. The Republicans have glommed onto this as like one of their key issues in the last quarter century or so. Um, and uh, you know, you're pro-choice largely, and so am I. So let let's just say it is a living human being. Now, it may not be a legal person yet, depends on where you draw the line. You know, if a woman's in her third trimester and she's murdered, it's a double homicide. So the state does mm-hmm. recognize personhood at some point. But isn't it reasonable to argue that there is a, not just a quantitative difference, but a qualitative difference, the moment of conception? You know, so everybody agrees a sperm and an egg, that's not a, a living human being. You got to have a boat. But the, the moment the conception happens, even if it's just you know, 16 cell plasticist, and the moment a woman gets pregnant when she wants to be pregnant, she talks about her baby as 
three weeks old and my baby is six weeks old. It's I can't wait to have my baby. They don't talk about it like it's a piece of medical tissue that has to be removed like a tumor. They talk about it like it's a human being. So why is it not murder? So I, I love that you're steel manning this one of all of them. And as you know, that my last line in this chapter is now that you all hate me, let's move on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I make the concession. What you just did there, I make that concession. The, look, we can leave it to ethicists and religious leaders and scientists to exactly tell us what the moment uh, when life really begins. But I, I will concede that when the sperm meets the egg, I'm willing to take that as the beginning of life. Um, now, again, you can talk about three days later in the blastocyst and when it attaches to the uterine wall. And I happen to be fairly well versed in this right now, because as you know, David and I have started the process of having kids, which for two guys mm -hmm. ends up being a lot more clinical than maybe you'd want it to be or than it is for a, a heterosexual couple. Um, but what I basic what my basic position on this is, is that at 12 weeks up to 12 weeks, whether you like it or not, if you live in a pluralistic society that is not a religious theocracy, you have to give that choice to the woman. Now, hopefully the man that was involved too, but at least to the woman. I don't like it. I don't like the idea of it. You know, I like, you know, the phrase, it should be uh, rare and safe is the idea. But then there's a lot of cascading issues for the, for the purely right to life crowd. I mean, first off, I've chatted with a lot of right to lifers who will tell me privately that although they take that, that hardcore, you know, no compromise position, that privately they know if their daughter got raped or if they found out that their daughter had a, had a child with severe brain abnormalities that could never live a fully actualized life, that they yeah. would do something. And now that's not a reason to make abortion legal, but I think it shows that we all live with certain inequities and inconsistencies in our ideology. So I think the best you can do, again, if you're just trying to create guardrails on a society that's gonna allow people from all walks of life and religious beliefs and philosophical beliefs and everything else, if you're just trying to guard as many of those people to be free, then you pick a fairly early time in the pregnancy, which is first trimester, and then you put a couple caveats around that related to the mother's health, and then you know severe abnormalities that could show up beyond that. But I just, it's, it's unfortunate, and, and you know, it, abortion has unfortunately been fetishized in a weird way by some on the left, yeah. and, and all of those things. It, this is the hardest one to talk about, and I don't think that there's an absolutely great answer. And I, do, I will just say one other thing, because I know we see largely uh, similarly on this, that I think in many ways, this is the one that keeps, let's say, people like you from saying you're a conservative, and keeps conservatives from saying people like Shermer is a conservative. That abortion, I've noticed this with a lot of my sort of liberally libertarian friends, or let's say ex-lefties, that this is the one that they go, I could never be one of them. And this is the one where the conservatives are like, yeah, you can kind of never be one of us, which in many ways is why I, I don't call myself a conservative. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's well, fair? Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, but, but again, it's really just in the last couple of decades that it's become such a conservative hot button issue. It used to be, you know, more moderate Republicans were in favor of Roe v. Wade. You know, mm -hmm. gold, so call them Goldwater Republicans or Goldwater conservatives, who was really, we would probably call a libertarian or classical liberal today, uh, that, you know, and Reagan never made a big deal about abortion like current Republicans seem to have to. 
Um, but speaking of fetishes, you know, guns have become fetishized on the right. I think just almost beyond belief. You know, we're talking the day after that uh, group of protesters were at the Capitol in, I think, Michigan with you know, Michigan, yeah. picture of them online with their, you know, military style assault rifles. It's, and it's like, holy crap, <laughs> you know, they're, they're just showing up with their guns. It seems to be one of these things that the gun represents something else like freedom, liberty or or whatever, that other freedom-loving countries don't seem to have. Why is that? So interestingly, th this is one where I think I'm a little more sympathetic to those people than yeah, you are yeah. probably. But that being said, I know that we're both proponents of the Second Amendment for sure and believe that you should be able to defend your family and your property and the rest of it. You know, in this portion, I lay out some of the things, you know, that, that there are more guns at this point. We think there are more guns than people in the United States. People, I mean, yeah. there's probably something yeah. around 350 million guns in the United States. And all of these ideas buy back programs. Well, if the government buys back something, that, that implies that it was the government's to begin with. So uh, there, you know, you only buy back something that you once owned. So there, we use a lot of strange terminology around this. You know, we have odd things like when I go into my local supermarket here where it says no firearms allowed and it's like, well, yeah, all the good guys, the non-murderous people are gonna follow that uh, yeah, edict, right. but you know, the, the guys that wanna create chaos aren't. So we, we have a really, this in many ways, this is sort of similar to the abortion one where the way we talk about this, it's almost like we're just talking about things from a, from a different perspective. So. Um, I also make a point that you know the, the gun issue is not one of my hardcore pet issues, um, but I do believe you know in, in a case of like what's happening with Michigan right now, that those people, as long as they don't break whatever the current gun laws are of the of in Michigan, yeah. they're allowed to protest. There, if if they have open carry there, then they are allowed to protest openly. And fortunately, at yeah. least as of our taping of this right now, there hasn't been any incidences, there hasn't been any violence. And you know, when, when people always attack the NRA for this sort of stuff, it's like, it's never NRA members that are doing any of these mass shootings. Often it's NRA members that are security guards that kill the shooter. So I think yeah. we have to just start thinking about it in a more mature way. But but your question really about why do we have this in America, this feeling about guns that that other countries that are Western countries don't, there is, there is a spirit uh, in America, and it's because of how our nation was founded. We were pushing back against the king and live free or die and don't tread on me. And I'm, I'm leery of doing anything that would, would quash that. Um, so it's not, again, this is one of those ones, and, and this is what I try to lay out consistently. These are not perfect answers. I think they're guideline answers for you to inform your own opinion. Yeah, social psychologist Richard Nesbitt uh, studies the culture of honor particularly in the South. So his argument is that um, democracy came late to Southern, Western and Southern states. And by that, the long arm of the, of the federal law with court systems and police and law and order was just not there. So people had to take, take it on themselves because everybody wants fairness and justice and the right thing to be done. And if the police aren't going to be there, there's no court, I have to do it. And that's where the gun comes in. So this, uh, that, that's why gun violence is higher in Western states and Southern states. Mm -hmm. Side rates are higher than Northern states and particularly New England states, where the citizens were largely disarmed, uh, you know, before this pileup of guns and so on. But anyway, let's let's just fi finish up this chapter on economic policy here. Um, I guess the steel man argument would be, isn't it obscene that 
say CEOs make, you know, a thousand times, 10,000 times the amount of the, uh, that the line worker makes, you know, the, 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 you know, Michael Eisner at, he's, at Disney, he's not working 10,000 times harder. He's not 10,000 times smarter. You know, why is he getting that kind of reward? Shouldn't we, I've even heard libertarians like Charles Murray go, yeah, that is really mm-hmm. obscene. How much money? I mean, the, the, the disparity is just staggering. Um, you know, shouldn't we, you know, curtail that a bit? If see if corporations won't do it because they won't, um, then maybe the government needs to do some of that. Yeah. So I, I don't really think that's the job of the government. So the way I would frame this is we we're both friends with Peter Thiel, who's worth, I think, of probably about six billion dollars or something insane. He's got a sick yeah. house. He's got several sick yeah. houses that I've been to. But I don't deserve any of those things. This guy helped create PayPal. He created Palantir. He's invested and taken tremendous risk in all sorts of companies. And by the way, you know, tons of people that inherit millions and millions of dollars lose it almost immediately. You know, you hear all of these stories about young people mm-hmm. that inherit, you know, the parents have all sorts of money. They get It doesn't just mean you're going to have it forever. I don't know that it's the government's job to tell companies oh, your CEOs can't earn this much, because then also what happens is you end up getting lesser quality CEOs and people want to figure out other things to do. I mean, there's a reason we don't have a lot of great minds in government right now, but it has something to do with caps on salary and and the rest of it. So look, do we have some sort of inequity in in finances in America? Of course we do. I I don't know that there's really a way around it. You know, I also, in the economic uh, portion of this, I talk about taxes and I'm just I'm just a firm believer that in general we don't have a tax problem in America we have a spend problem so everyone you know the government operates by every department has to spend their budget every year unless or they get their budget cut so they always spend it or go over and then demand more money and then everyone says oh we have to raise taxes and even right now in the midst of corona with while we're doing the stimulus I would much rather, instead of the government just giving people money, which I'm not opposed to for the people that are hurting right now, um, although I don't love the concept, um, I would much rather have allowed people to keep much more of their money in the first place. So what I call for basically is an 18, uh, well, I call for an 18% flat tax with some exceptions. I actually do a little bit of a progressive game, which is where I say, you know, classical liberals are just are just guilty libertarians. If you make something over <laughs> five million bucks, yeah, you could pay a little bit more. I'm not even sure it's economically sound, and I'm pretty sure Thomas Sowell would smack me over the head with a newspaper for saying it. But again, I'm talking about guidelines here, so that's where I'd be throwing a little something to the lefties to say, yeah, you could pay a little bit more up top. And then, by the way, at the bottom, I am okay with the poorest amongst us getting a free ride on taxes. But I think a flat tax, it would get rid of all the loopholes, it would treat us all equally, it wouldn't punish success. And I think that's sort of that's sort of how you have to do it. I don't, you know, we know that this system's not working. We know that there's a million ways around it. We know, Michael, we live in California. Yeah. I mean, come on, our taxes, yeah. you know, you know how much better we'd be doing if we live in Texas. And right now we can't even go to the beaches. So what the hell are we doing right. here? I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, the beaches are still out in Santa Barbara if you want to come up this weekend. Oh, you're doing all right. I, I may visit you this weekend. <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's a, a sense of, uh, on the left anyway, that uh, even when people like Bill Gates generously give away a lot of money uh, earlier on the coronavirus 
pandemic, that NBA star uh, gave a bunch of money to the workers at the stadium where they play, the arena where they play. That was in New Orleans. And but but some of the pushback against that was, yeah, but let's not praise him too much because he shouldn't have had that much money in the first place to yes. give away. Yes. And then it's suddenly and, like, you words, know, this is what AOC arguing. does. This is what AOC yeah. does. It's like we're going to tax the hell out of the billionaires to get what we want. And also billionaires are evil. And that's very much like the cigarette thing before. Cigarettes are evil. They're killing us. We're also going to tax them to do the things we want. This is a very dangerous play. It's also a dangerous play by Gates because it's like. No matter, no matter how much you give, you're still going to be the bad guy in their eyes. So I, I don't think that that sort of guilt-ridden policy is a great idea. That's where I would just rather we flatten the taxes as much as possible with some relief at the bottom, a little extra up top, which again, I'm not even sure is morally or financially right, but that would be just throwing something to the lefties. And then pretty much you, you get the government out of the way and you cut back some regulation and, and you let the economy move. One of my arguments uh, against that idea is that, um, you know, there's what we see and there's what we don't see. What we see are the billionaires that made it. What we don't see are thousands or tens of thousands of entrepreneurs who never made it or they made they're just kind of barely successful or they failed or they lost all of their money. You know, my I have a VC friend um, who tells me that I forget what the exact numbers are, but, the, you know, out of out of 100 pitches, they they fund one. And out of yep. the hundred that they fund, one makes it to IPO where the, the head guy makes a gazillion dollars. So many are called, few are chosen. And we only see the one at the top and they go, hey, 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 how come that guy gets so much money? Well, if you're going to take his money, then what about all the failures? Are we going to fund them? In a way, right. we are funding them by saying you should take all these risks because if you make it, look what, what you get. And if you lose, sorry, buddy. That, that is the exact point. Listen, as a guy that just started a tech company in the last year, I, I've been in a lot of pitch meetings. We've pitched to a lot of people. Some people bit, some people didn't. And if it's a bust, some people are gonna lose some money. And if it's a win and we go to IPO one day, some people are gonna make serious bank. And that's what free market capitalism is all about. Right. Okay, last uh, kind of general, I, I don't think you talked about prostitution and polygamous marriage in the book, but uh, I wanted to touch on that in the sense that the, the libertarian or classical liberal argument of, you know, the harm principle, it's the consenting adults, you know, prostitutes uh, and say polygamous women that want to marry the guy and, and have sister wives or whatever. Uh, what's wrong with that? Now, I used to, that's the position I've always held. But then, mm -hmm. you know, when, when you kind of pour into it and you see, well, a lot of these women in prostitution were, you know, teenagers. They weren't really consenting, mm -hmm. and they and the pimps get them drug addicted, and they beat them. And you know, so I thought, hmm, maybe the state, the light touch of the state, has to kind of regulate some of that. And also, these polygamous women, you know, they were raised since the you know the the, the time they were children. This is what you're going to do. You're going to marry this old guy. Okay, what do they know? So then, when you put them on camera, and they go, yeah, yeah, I love being a sister wife to so and so. But they don't really right. know what you know, the kind of autonomy and, and free choice would be like if they weren't raised that way. To me, this is a hard one because it's, it's implying that the state's going to get in there and muddle around about what it means to have free will or consent or autonomy. So this is I don't talk about it specifically in the book, but I, I did write a little bit. And, you know, we had to we had to cut some things as you have to do uh, on the on the prostitution side. I'm actually OK with prostitution being legal. I get all of the more traditional conservative arguments about what it does to the women and the family and all that. 
but it, we know it's happening anyway. And they, you know, there are plenty of studies out of Amsterdam where they're in a union and they get benefits and all sorts of stuff and you can clean it up and get some of the drugs out. So that would be one. Right. As for the, the multiple wives, I'm sort of with you. It's, it's a messy one. And I, again, this is where I get the more traditional conservative argument about the traditional family as sort of the building block for everything else. So I would lean, I would lean against it just by saying, if if we're if the government is involved in marriage, which it is right now, then then it should just be, it should just be one person can marry one person, and we just leave it at that. But I think we should probably <laughs> put that one aside. That's that's a whole other thing. Yeah. I, know, I know we've got one more here. Okay, final point. Um, so one of my favorite uh, books, and, and that gets pushed against me uh, on the big pro free speech idea and tolerance, is Karl Popper's Open Society. And and so this is always thrown at me. What about uh, you know Popper's paradox? That is, if you tolerate mm -hmm. intolerant people, the intolerant people will get power, and they won't tolerate you, and therefore they'll get a toehold and then take over. What's your counter to that? It this is this is almost the hard, the hardest one there is, right? That's why it's the paradox. And, and I think we see a lot of this these days that there are a, a group of highly intolerant people who are telling everyone else they're the intolerant people when we know that the ones who are saying it would gladly use the state to silence other people. So this is a this right. is a massive problem. I would say, look, right now it's like, the you know Trump happens to be in power, and you know they can say that the conservatives and the religious people are all intolerant, but nobody's nobody's coming to knock on their door. You know you can you can tweet at Trump all day long that he's Hitler and all the worst things in the world, and the Gestapo doesn't show you, show up at your door, and you don't <laughs> right, you don't get pulled right. to the gulag, right? What I do fear though is the counter to that, which is imagine if we had a really progressive or leftist president, and suddenly the the same thoughts were being presented, you know, if he tweeted it, let's say it was President Elizabeth Warren, and she tweeted out something, and suddenly all the conservative commentators were telling her she's Hitler and just saying all the awful things that people say about Trump all the time, I'm fairly certain that the progressives would gladly use the state of the power, uh, the power of the state to silence dissent. So I do think this is, this is almost one of the biggest problems that we have right now, because there's an asymmetry between, it's not just an asymmetry of power, it's an asymmetry of what type of people want to use power. Lefties are generally saying we want the state to do things. They, they believe the state can be do, do a lot of good. The more libertarian-minded of us, it's not that we don't think the state can do good, but we're leery that the state could do a lot of bad, so we don't want to give it that kind of power. So this is why the paradox yeah. is the paradox. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's it's very unlikely to happen here. It doesn't happen in in most places historically. You know, people always throw up, of course, Hitler and and Stalin, and Mao, and and I guess Kim Jong Un now. Uh, but there aren't many of those examples historically uh, since the rise of democracies. Most democracies can tolerate some intolerance without intolerant people taking over the press and and so on. Uh, I mean, as, as much as Trump has been hammered for himself, hammering the New York Times, for example, saying the fa failing New York Times and so on. Well, apparently the New York Times subscription rates are the highest they've ever been. And, you know, they seem to be thriving pretty well. So whatever he's right. doing, he's not stopping the press. Well, that's what I always say. It's like everyone's actually acting. You may want Trump to behave more presidential or more professionally, whatever that means. But he attacks the press. The press attacks him. Nobody gets thrown in jail. Nobody's being dragged off and the rest of it, which which reminds me of the Colin Kaepernick thing, which I write about, which is that Kaepernick decided to kneel 
That means, so he expressed himself. Trump is allowed to say what he wants about it. He can't use the government to stop the guy from doing anything, but he's allowed to voice an opinion too. The, the owners of the team are allowed to say, well, this is becoming too much of a headache or not, and I, I don't want him there. The fans are allowed to say, well, I'm gonna protest and not buy tickets, or I'm not gonna buy jerseys. So ironically, the whole Kaepernick thing was framed to the world as if free speech was under attack, but literally right. everybody from the fans to the president of the United States and everyone in between, the owners, the whole, everyone expressed themselves and nobody was dragged off. So this is where to, I think it would probably be a good ending. It's sort of like, this is where America's done uh, uh, tolerance pretty well. And we should just be leery of <laughs> yeah. throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> well, those were all the right answers. So I'm not gonna burn your book after all. <laughs> <laughs> The conversation doesn't end here. Join us at RubenReport.com, where we're diving even deeper into each chapter of Don't Burn This Book, and you can ask me questions directly. Once you access the Ruben Report community, you'll get so much more than access just to me. You'll be joining thousands of others, sharing their ideas, their interests, and posting photos, videos, memes. Plus, you'll get the Ruben Report podcast, ad-free and ad-free video. RubenReport.com, that's RubenReport.com.